Welcome to Friday. Welcome to Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. And when I say welcome to Friday, I'm talking about the only Friday of this fall membership drive. That's right. So if you love the local news and analysis that you always get here on Week in Review, well, this is your only chance to make that important financial contribution to keep our work going. Here's what you do. You make a contribution by calling 206-543-9595. Again, that's 543-9595. You can donate online at KUOW.org. You can text us. Just text the letters KUOW to the number 41444. Okay, got all that? You don't have to, to reach us all of those ways. Just pick your favorite. And remember that KOW works in service of the truth and of your right to know. Journalism finds the truth, holds power to account, helps you navigate your world in the Puget Sound area, amplifies those local voices and perspectives, and your support helps us do more of all of that. 543 KUOW.org and a little deal sweetener here. We'd love to send you the new KUOW tie-dye bucket hat. It's not exactly the Kangle hat. I think it's kind of the same idea. I'm no haberdasher, but the, the tie-dye bucket hat looks cool and the price is $10 a month uh, or that's $120 for a year of membership. Up to you. So that's just one of the thank you gifts. You can see them all at KUOW.org. I want to quote Matthew in Bow, Washington, up near Bellingham, who says, I happily pay monthly for TV shows and movies, and yet as an everyday listener, I get so much more from KUOW. So I'll be treating my favorite radio station as my favorite streaming service and donating every month into the future. Thanks, KUOW. I got to say thanks, uh, Matthew, for that. Uh, one more. Catherine in Seattle says, I listen to KUOW for fresh, unbiased radio journalism that keeps me informed and interactive in my community. Publicly funded radio is educative, mm, educative, engaging, and promotes all of us to think and do better for everyone. Thanks, KUOW, for keeping me company. Well said, Catherine. Uh, lastly, a reminder of how you do all that. Make your contribution right now on the phone, 206-543-9595. Do it online, KUOW.org, or text us. Text KUOW to the number 41444. That's it. Now, let me welcome you again to Week in Review. You know, this is the hour when we get together on a Friday and figure out what happened this week and what it all means. And thank you for your contribution. We do all of this with our panel of journalists. And so let's welcome our panel this week. Seattle Channel producer and host Brian Callanan. Brian, welcome back to the show. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks. It's a pleasure. And Fox 13 reporter Jennifer Lee. Hiya. Welcome back, Jennifer. Hey, Bill and everyone. Thanks for having me. I used to say Q13, but it's Fox 13 now. <laughs> Yes, the Q is RIP, so it is now Fox 13 News. Okay, we've quit the Q. And Crosscut Science reporter Hannah Weinberger. Welcome back, Hannah. It's so good to see all of you. It's great to see you. And by the way, see you can because we are live streaming the show on YouTube and Facebook. Just pop on and search for KUOW Public Radio and wonder what is happening in Brian Callanan's room. Uh, we say, were just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It has to do with sound waves, and it's actually Absolutely. cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, speaking of the science of sound, when we've got a science reporter here, Hannah Weinberger, I've, I have a science-y question for you, if I may. Oh, uh, no. Well, it's, it's just that last night was windy and rainy. Was that a bomb cyclone, or was it just windy and rainy last night? You, you know, know, our uh, baseline levels of windiness and raininess here are a little bit elevated right now, but we're not quite at bomb cyclone category yet. Uh, I think you'll know, except in our region, the uh, second and potentially third storms, because this is a series of storms, might make themselves a little more present. Okay. I mean, I suppose a wind that pushes over a tree or a power line, as happened last night, is kind of like a bomb, but but do we need our meteorologists to be metaphorical? I, I mean, you could call it the Great Titanic explosion too, but sure. but but yeah. why why I, explosive cyclogenesis uh, is the <laughs> phrase that I looked up, which sounds really crazy to me. Like there should be an ointment for that or something, but it's uh, it's something that's happening. The bomb cyclone is very real. I think we're looking at possibilities of seventy five mile per hour winds. Now I always take what the different. Well, that's what they're saying. It could get that high. It, and I guess I look at that and I always look at forecasts in the Seattle area with a grain of salt, but I think mm -hmm. it is important to get ready at least a little bit and make sure that you're prepped for that time in between Saturday, or excuse me, Sunday and Monday 
because I think we're, it's going to be nasty at the very least. Hmm. Absolutely. And half the battle of getting people prepared for these things is catching ears and eyes. And I yeah. mean, personally, Cyclone is enough for me to like pay attention. But if you want to add bomb in front of it, you know, there you go. <laughs> more help, the better. Yeah, I'm, I'm still having trouble even understanding like how to tangibly like process in my head a bomb cyclone. But just looking at like the radar images of this massive shape that's like swirly and like heading in our direction. I mean, it's pretty intimidating. I am not advising anyone to do nothing. I'm just being honest with you and modest when I say I'm going to do nothing. I think it's going to be windy and rainy. Uh, I don't call them murder hornets. I don't want to call it a bomb cyclone. But I see those people on the news who think the hurricane will never hit them, and sometimes it does. So I'm not telling you to be like me. Um, okay. okay, should we talk about other news this week? Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Thanks for being here, journalists. Uh, this week was the deadline for, for Washington state workers to be fully vaccinated. And the latest numbers I've seen, 92% of state workers complied, 3% of unvaccinated workers got accommodations so they can keep their jobs, but some are still waiting to see if they're going to get accommodated. Overall, about 1,900 state employees are out of a job. That's 3% of the overall workforce. Most of them were fired, a handful resigned, an even smaller number retired. Jennifer, those who didn't retire, those ex-state workers, are they getting unemployment benefits? From what I understand, it's really going to be an individual basis, case by case. And I think the individuals who did submit an exemption and they were accepted, but perhaps the workplace couldn't accommodate their exemption, they may have a better shot at getting unemployment. So it's not totally a no, but it's not guaranteed. It just depends on the person's circumstance. And I think they have to be prepared to answer specific questions, whether it's medical related or religious related, um, to kind of prove that it's legitimate. That sounds massively complicated. Very. <laughs> so do we think there's going to be, this was one of the big questions as we approach this deadline, Will there be, I, I mentioned uh, 1,900 workers. That's a little hard for me to get my mind around. Um, I know there are workers we really rely on when there's, I don't know, a bomb cyclone or a sure. massive snowstorm, right? We have uh, transportation workers. We have state patrol workers. Uh, do we, do, do we uh, Hannah, are we expecting, as far as you know, big disruptions or do we know yet? Um, I feel like there are some agencies that are expecting a degree of disruption, and this feels like a little lower priority concern for some people probably, but um, I'm thinking a lot about snowplows and ferries. Um, mm -hmm. As someone who likes to wander around the state and who's been excited to do more of that as vaccination rates increase, um, a little bummed to see that the state is forecasting maybe not having enough people to snowplow our roads officially this winter or run a full ferry schedule. Hmm. Um, that's bad for recreationists and for rural residents who really don't have a lot of avenues to get places and for transportation of goods. Um, but one silver lining is I recently saw this great tweet from WashDOT where they were like, basically, this is not verbatim, like, have you ever wanted to drive a snowplow? Come on down and do that professionally. And it's like, wow, yeah. like, that's where we're at. But, you know, I'll give the snowplows a wide berth this year. And hopefully people will get to live out their dreams if that's been a moonshot. I'm trying to get to drive. I'm actually emailing with uh, Washdot. <laughs> right, I want, right I, I'm asking them if I can drive. I'm serious. I've been at back and forth. Can I drive a <laughs> snowplow? I want yeah. to bring my microphone. So we'll see about that. I'll it. wave just in case it's you. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Right. yeah. That'll be fun. I, I just look at this, Bill. I mean, it's, it's interesting to watch this. This whole concept of vaccine mandates has been around since George Washington told the Continental Army to get vaccinated against smallpox in the, the Revolutionary War, right, back in the late 1700s there. And I, I, I don't think these are ever popular, and we are going to be losing some people, and that's unfortunate. But I think the results have borne out then and now that these are uh, these are things that work. Vaccinations save lives. And I think that's uh, the bottom line I try to draw out of it. It is difficult to see all this different back and forth between the workers and the ferry system has been getting hammered. That's that's uh, that's not a good thing at all. And I, I'm worried about the snow plows as well. But I, I look at this and I try to look at that bottom line, which is, I hope, uh, a healthier Washington state uh, going forward. And we've seen those numbers decline, which is great. And I have to think it at least a little bit. There's something about these vaccine mandates that's playing into that.
And Jennifer, Absolutely, you mentioned- Brian. You know, there's a lot of research to show that vaccine mandates do encourage people to actually get vaccinated, especially yeah. when they were on the fence. So yeah. a lot of the, you know, big, crazy uh, exoduses of people from their agencies that were being threatened haven't yeah. panned out totally. So that's been good to see too. Yeah. And early in September, I think we had um, some of the vaccine numbers from the state that said it was about just over 60% that were fully vaccinated. And then, you know, today we're at over 90%. So, I mean, that just goes to show that a lot of people decided to do it because they were required to. Mm -hmm. But not the football coach of Washington State University. Oh, my gosh. That's a rough one. (laughs) No. Rough one. Highest paid state employee, uh, Nick Rolovich, got fired and is now going to sue Washington State University over it. Based on on what? Who can who can describe what the what the claim is? I'll jump in here, if I may. I I just think it's interesting to look at his court case because it's not necessarily against the state mandate, per se. But he is saying that uh, even if he was granted a religious exemption, which he was not in this case, but he's saying even if he was granted that religious exemption, he would have been terminated. And that's a really important nuance there. He's kind of focusing on what the university, as he alleges, told him and whatever else. If if he was trying to go down the whole path of this religious uh, exemption that he was looking for should have been approved, I'm not sure that that case would hold water because uh, it was a blind review of this uh, request that he put in for exemption there. So the state reviewed that. And then if, if you want to get on board with what different Catholics are saying around the country and the world, Pope Francis, all about it. He's on board with vaccinations. And then you think about our state attorney general, Bob Ferguson. He's saying, OK, we've had a few of these challenges to these exemptions or whatever else, but the AG's office is undefeated and 42 challenges to them. So a lot of different things to consider here legally. But this is going to be a really interesting legal case to watch for sure. Just on before we leave, before we leave the Pope, I, I keep hearing that, but you can have a sincere religious conviction without agreeing with the Pope, right? This is true. I mean, yeah. Is that just I, I something? Just, I thought, it's, that's yeah, not legal. Ahead. I know you're. I, I, it's it's conversationally. I hear that a lot. I'm, but there's no legal impact of that, right? It's, right. it's, it's like the, saying pro-choice it, yeah. Catholics are insincere or something. Like you could diverge from the Pope. True, true. No, I I, I think this is a big part of what we're seeing in some of these religious uh, exemption cases is people saying, this is what I believe and you need to respect my belief about uh, anti-vaccine tendencies. And so I think you're seeing that in a lot of these cases. I think these are cases that will probably go to different courts. And I'm talking about the U.S. Supreme Court, too, as people try to challenge these things. So I think the shoe is not the other shoe is not dropped at all on these different legal challenges. Rolovich on up. I I think there's going to be a few of them that that move along. And based on the news release from Nick Rolovich's lawyer, um, in my opinion, after reading that, it seemed like the lawyer was trying to build a case really geared towards athletic director Pat Chun, mm-hmm. claiming that he used the word animus started in April before this vaccine mandate um, came down in August. Um, so I think they're definitely build a case that isn't necessarily to fight the mandate per se. Does that mean that people are feeling like fighting the mandate is a fruitless effort? Like you should rely on other things instead of that. I, well, I don't know. And I'm, it, you know, are, and are more people going to start? Uh, I think about this in a few different ways, because I think there are a number of people, especially as we head towards this period where people are going to have to show their vaccine cards, you know, to get into bars, restaurants and all that other kind of stuff. Are we going to start seeing the fake IDs proliferate? Because that has happened in our country and around the world. So I think there's a lot of different ways that people are trying to uh, work through this legal ways and there's illegal ways, too. So uh, it's just, uh, again, these these mandates have been around for centuries in our country. They're never popular. But again, I think the history bears out that they 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 save lives at the end of the day. The vaccines do. Does anyone think uh, that this question of enforcement, let's just take King County, where, as you say, that begins on Monday. Um, Do you do you really think uh, businesses restaurants, bars are going to get shut down. I mean, those interactions are just so they can be very personal. You know, they, they could be, they could be hostile. They're very quick. They happen at big scale is how much enforcement do you think there's going to be and by whom? I mean, you know, personally on the the side of the businesses doing enforcement, I feel like it's the state really passing the book. Mm -hmm. Um, So the level of enforcement will really depend on 
uh, I think probably initial news about how negative interactions go. Like yeah. you can really set a precedent for whether people are willing to tell potential patrons they can't come in, uh, you know, based on those first news stories. And you know, while these things need to be enforced, asking employees to correct the behavior of people who, in many situations, value their neighbor's safety the least puts these employees in a really precarious position. And the fact that all of this sounds like it's gonna be an honor system mm -hmm. makes me feel like it's gonna take a lot for people to put their lives on the line in another way, apart from letting potentially unvaccinated or, or virus carrying people into their places of business. Yeah, and we've already seen so much pushback at, at different places around King County and Seattle where people have been pushing back against the mask mandate. So what about this next part here and how does that affect businesses? And I think a lot of these businesses, there's a logistic part to it too. It's like, all right, is there going to be someone at the door checking IDs? Do we need extra employees and things like that? So again, we've, we've been talking about COVID over the past year and a half plus now, building the plane at 30,000 feet in the air. But this feels like another one of those moments where we're going to have to figure out this system because as it stands right now, the whole deal about, you know, making sure you've got your vaccine uh, card on your phone or whatever else, there's going to be a learning period over here. So I have to think that at least in the first couple of weeks, there'll be a little bit of a grace period here. But then the county and state, if they're going to be honest about this, are going to have to crack down and help some of these businesses in some way. Absolutely, Brian. Like your barista never signed up to be a bouncer. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. So I uh, went to the gym this morning and I was just curious, you know, beginning on Monday, you know, what the process was yeah. going to be like. So I asked the person at the desk and she told me come Monday, every single person who comes in, they're going to be checking and asking for vaccine verification. Um, and then once they check that, they'll mark it on your account. So I imagine, you know, establishments where they have go. membership, mm -hmm. you know, they might just have a really, you know, few busy weeks. Um, and obviously they'll have to continue monitoring every time someone scans that they have already been verified. But I do agree. I think places like restaurants, bars, it's just going to be a continuous cycle because how do you know if this person has been here before? And I don't, I don't think you could um, even get away with being like, oh, you're a regular. <laughs> No, and, and it'll be interesting, too, with the restaurants, because the smaller ones, the ones that have fewer than 12 seats or whatever, it's actually not until December 6th that they have to come in line with this. So I think it's going to be a testing process over the next several weeks here and some of the larger sporting events, too. It'll be interesting to see how Lumen Field handles this, how Husky Stadium handles this. So, uh, yeah, a, a lot of moving parts here. but. Uh, I'm hoping people have the grace and understanding to get us through this because this is the next wave. And if we really are going to keep those numbers coming down in terms of COVID, this is that next step. At least that's what our state government's saying. It's also interesting because um, based on, you know, what the reports have been saying, it is going to be an honor system when it comes to enforcement. But I think we've also heard of, you know, how things are being done in other cities and other states mm -hmm. and how, they might say, okay, well, you've obviously not been following the rules, so you're only allowed to do takeout until you get back with the program of verifying. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's enough complaints lodged, if something like that might also happen here. Uh, finally, before we leave uh, pandemic news and, and cover the rest of the week's events, um, I wanted to hear some, some, some happy news, Jennifer, which you brought this week with this uh, Federal Way resident who got home after spending, was it the, the better part of a year, basically a year with COVID? A year. So I was on the phone with his wife a few days ago, and she was telling me their story. He first developed symptoms October 24th, 2020, and he was released after cycling through five different hospitals, some of them all the way down in Oregon, um, finally made it to a rehab center in Everett, and was just released this week. So that is a full year of ups and downs. And, you know, I really feel for this family. I'm so happy for them, but everything that they've been through, they just didn't know if he was going to make it. And multiple times they were told to come down to the hospital in Oregon to say their goodbyes. So, you know, I'm just so thrilled. Um, so his name is Hector Garcia. His wife's name is Elizabeth. And I'm just so happy for them. He's back home in federal way now, so it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, thank you for that. Welcome home, Hector. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, may we all. Um, we are talking about the news of the week as we do on uh, our Week in Review here on Friday. And we're going to take a short break and we're going to come right back and keep doing what we do. So please, if you haven't uh, done it yet, just take a moment and say uh, at KUOW.org, say, yeah, this, this local journalism, this Friday conversation, I love it. I hear from you. I get emails from you. I see uh, notes from people who are fans of the show. So help it help it along right now, will you? This is our pledge drive. We're going to be right back. The phone number is 543-9595, 206-543-9595. We're online at KUOW.org, and we got thank you gifts. We'll be right back. Bill Radke here, your host on the Friday Week in Review, and it's the only Friday of this whole autumn membership drive. So this is it. If you're a Week in Review fan, and why else would you be listening, uh, let us know right now and keep this program going strong. Make it happen with a call to 206-543-9595 or donate online, KUOW.org. Um, let's see. We're going to talk about Seattle getting self-driving cars, whether we want them or not. We're going to may- maybe get a whole streetcar line here. Uh, we'll find out from my journalism guests. I want to quote Jennifer from Seattle, who says, now especially unbiased, insightful, fact-based journalism is key. Your coverage of critical issues is imperative at these uncertain times. Our democracy literally is at stake. Stay unbiased. That's from Jennifer in Seattle, and uh, we appreciate it. Here's how to make that support, make your contribution. I certainly love the monthly Evergreen member. That's what we do in my family. You just start up, it could be a 5 or $10 a month donation online, and you just keep that running for as long as you like. Very convenient, KUOW.org. You can text us, text the letters KUOW to 41444. Now, let's get back to the reason that you're contributing, shall we? Which is uh, discussing the news of the week with my journalist panel this week. Crosscut science reporter Hannah Weinberger, Fox 13 reporter Jennifer Lee, Seattle Channel producer and host Brian Callanan. And uh, Hannah, Seattle, as I mentioned, is apparently about to get self-driving cars on our roads. Ooh, uh, you know... I will cross my fingers that that takes a little bit longer than uh, Amazon would like uh, the new owners of Zooks, which is, you know, not the name that I really want to have in my eulogy as for why I uh, wound up. <laughs> right. Can you imagine like Zooks hit you? Um, yeah, Zooks. Yeah, yeah Zooks. I know, <laughs> uh, you know, pedestrians and cyclists like myself already have enough dissuading them from sharing the road with cars. And while self-driving cars have made some gains over the years, what I've seen so far doesn't make me feel less full exploring streets that they are using. Um, also, the, the thing about this that I really appreciated in a recent Seattle Times article was that the company responded to concerns from local transit advocates by saying that they had gotten all the regulatory approvals that they need to test cars in Seattle, but that approval boils down to a one-page self-certification filed with the Department of Licensing that's basically like, Here's our insurance, and we'll have someone in the car to step in if need be. But what are the guidelines around when human takeover is required? So I, you know, will definitely be uh, keeping to multi-use bike paths for the time being. Jennifer, didn't the company say that part of the reason they're going to test self-driving cars here is because it's hard to do? It's hard to drive here? (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty funny to, um, you know, just read and see that, you know, okay, there's, you know, more wet days. Um, so maybe the roads are a little slicker. And obviously, we have, you know, a decent, uh, like, amount of traffic during rush hour. Um, and, you know, there's hills. If you just think about the topography of our city, uh, there's a lot that a vehicle <laughs> would have to go through. So um, it's interesting. I think that it's great they're still going to have a person and maybe they should do like a soft launch when it's not busy Um, because it was also frightening to hear about some of the incidents that have occurred, you know, not taking account to people who are, let's say, jaywalking. So it'll be interesting. I'll keep my eyes open for those uh, vehicles. Yeah, and I just remember a couple years ago, I think 2018, sometime around there, when Uber was trying to use some of these self-driving vehicles had a fatal crash, not a good situation there. And I just think about that and where that goes to now and watching the industry and what it's doing. Uber and Lyft, which had divisions there dedicated towards self-driving cars, 
they basically bailed on those. They're not doing that anymore. So I, I wonder where this is actually going to go. I think the industry is changing a lot. Amazon is always going to be pushing for something. This is another example of industry kind of pushing the envelope on public policy here. But I think, like you say, Hannah, this is, uh, this is something I having some extra caution with. I am fine with that because it is difficult enough to be walking or biking around downtown Seattle right now to have that extra concern of these four extra unmanned cars driving around. I don't know. It, it gives me pause. That's for sure. Absolutely, Brian. And to Jennifer's point about Seattle being a difficult place to drive, it's like, I don't want to be the guinea pig where <laughs> right. they learn how to use the car. They're like, when were public uh, requests for public comment going to come into this process, especially mm. from marginalized communities? Like I know Zooks has like a pretty diverse leadership, um, but there are so many instances where technology might be perfect in theory, but it's programmed by fallible people with blind spots where, you know, like Jennifer said, there have been self-driving cars that weren't programmed to anticipate jaywalkers. So I want to make sure that people in communities where this is being tested, especially people who might not be aware of this or who are definitely sharing streets with cars, get to have a say. To be fair, I have seen humans not take jaywalkers into account, and I have been <laughs> behind <true>. humans. <laughs> I have been behind humans on wet uh, hills when they're especially when they're trying to shift. So the right. goal is to is for driving to get safer. And I don't know. I haven't looked into how else you would do that besides test them out in real conditions. But that's that's yeah. fair. And I mean, yeah, and the drivers wouldn't be impaired either. I mean, that's a piece of it as well. That's always out on our streets. So I, I think the argument is there in terms of everyone has that same goal of making the road safer. I just I don't know. I don't know if we're there yet. And, and testing is the only way you can do it. But I would hope there's uh, there's some personnel in these test cars such that there can be a, an emergency stop of some sort, I guess. Right, Brian. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to your point about how you make streets safer, I, you know, this is editorializing, but I'm patently against things that make private individual vehicular transportation the alternative still. Mm -hmm. Like these self-driving cars are still cars and we're in a city that's been freaking out positively about light rail and where we have more people on bikes than ever. So why is self-driving cars kind of this tangent that we're going down? Brian, I don't know whether the streetcar will be autonomous, mm. but I, you, you, <laughs> oh you've, you've been you've been following the Seattle City budget. We will be which yeah. we'll be talking more about this this fall. But just yeah. for today, one interesting piece is that maybe there's money for the Seattle streetcar, which I thought was in a ditch. What's going on? <laughs> yeah, this is really interesting. It's been kind of a political beach ball for many years. Uh, originally, the mayor didn't want this. Then she did. And now as Jenny Durkin is wrapping up her one and only term, she's proposing putting some dollars in to really keep this program on life support. But the dollar figures I'm really thinking about come from a couple of years ago when we learned that the overall price tag for this connector to connect the city's two streetcar lines here, that overall price tag went from $177 million to $286 million. So <laughs> it's, it's a lot we're talking about here. So would this connect two streetcar lines? Yes. Is this a good use of money for our transit system? You've got a couple of council members here, council member Peterson and council member Herbold, who are big no votes on this. They're saying there's better priorities for this money. Are they enough to derail this project completely? I'm not sure. It's just one of those type of things where I look at it and all the different investments that we're talking about with the move Seattle levy from a few years ago that have been unfulfilled. Is it the right time to be putting money towards something like this with a streetcar? When we talk about all the bridge maintenance, it might not all be, be all that sexy or whatever else, but look what happened with the West Seattle Bridge. Is it the right time to be thinking about these street called scar, uh, streetcar dollars? So I think a lot at stake here. I think the city council is going to be wrestling with this over the next little bit. $2.4 million isn't a huge amount, really, in the overall budget for the city of Seattle, which is over $7 billion there. So I think they're going to be taking a close look at it, but I'm not quite sure if the streetcar is going to make it to the next stop. Mm. Well, I'm not going to editorialize about the streetcar either, but I just I, I can relate to the irritation. It's like a hangnail to me that we have the two streetcar mm -hmm. pieces, which you could argue is a very savvy move on the part of people trying to get money for it was to do sure. one one third and the opposite third. And then right. what are you going to do? Not connect yeah. them? I, right. just, I, I, get well, that I, I think there's impulse. been a push from the city to say, OK, if you really want to get it connected here, businesses. Why don't you turn this out? Why, don't, why doesn't this turn into a more private project here? Because watching these different cost estimates go up and down, actually more up than anything else, watching those go up like that, I think the city has felt a little bit in a bind here because 
Do they want to commit more money to a project that is continually going to cost more? Because I got to say, even that estimate from a couple of years ago of 286 million, it's going to be higher now if they want to try to do this. I'm not saying it's a terrible thing. This is a streetcar that could be connected, could be great. We could certainly use some more options out there. A few members of the city council, council president, uh, Lorena Gonzalez has said, it's great to have redundancy, actually more than one system on our streets. So I'm, I'm interested to see where this policy uh, conversation will go, but it's just a difficult time to be talking about transportation dollars with something like this when, I don't know, it's been kind of, I don't know, barely a pulse over the past couple of years. Absolutely, Brian. And, you know, before we go on, I just really want to call out your derailed pun. I appreciate it. It was right there. Had to be done. Had to be done. Yep. Um, you know, on the topic of redundancy, it's hard to go against anything that bolsters some of those really high traffic routes that we want people to be using transit in. Um, but is it the most efficient use of those funds, especially when some of those areas where things would be redundant might not be, you know, with the opening of the light rail, there's been a lot of bus lines that have, you know, become uh, obsolete or taken offline. So maybe we should be trying to get our bus lines back, not just to service like they were at before COVID, but increasing bus service rather than focusing on this one small uh, transit measure. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking at uh, Hannah Weinberger with lots of natural wood. I'm looking at Jennifer <laughs> Lee with a, with a minimalist approach and a, and, a, and a lovely sweater. I'm looking at Brian Callanan apparently being attacked by charcoal egg, yes. cart, egg cartons. Uh, and yeah. you can watch us too because we're we're showing this, uh, uh, you know, live streaming this on YouTube and Facebook. This is Week in Review on KUOW, and uh, I'm Bill Radke, and we're going to take a short break and then get right back to doing what we do. Uh, and we couldn't do it without you. So here's the phone number to make a financial contribution. This is the only uh, Friday we're doing this fall membership drive. So go to KUOW.org or call the number 206-543-9595. Don't go away. Hi, I'm Bill Radke. I don't use phone while I'm hosting the show, but but I can see you, you know. Tom in Puyallup uh, writing, donating now to make sure you keep the KOW stream long. And I see Gina in Anacortes saying, thank you for, for providing the real news. It's more important than ever to drown out the disinformation. And I see Layton in Renton saying, I appreciate the great work you folks do. Your reporting and service to the community is invaluable. I'm glad to be a listener and supporter. Thanks again. Uh, well, thank you. Uh, I, I say this because... Uh, you're hearing us do our pledge drive, and 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 you're contributing. So many of you have donated at KOW.org. I want you to know, because I know you're a Week in Review fan, this is your last chance to donate during Week in Review. We're not going to be uh, doing a pledge drive uh, next Friday. So this is it. Um, you can go online, KOW.org. You can call right now. Call 206-543-9595. Uh, 543-9595, or text the letters K-U-O-W. That's K-U-O-W to the number 41444. And then you'll be a member as well, especially we're welcoming new members right now. It'd be great to get more people on board if you've never become a member before. No more waiting. Uh, okay, do it right now. Thank you so much. Back to the news. And uh, I'm speaking here with my, my journalist colleagues. I've got Hannah Weinberger from Crosscut and Brian Callanan from Seattle Channel, and Jennifer Lee from Fox 13. And, um, you know, 20 years ago, when the, is that about 20 years, right? The Nisqually earthquake hit, and mm -hmm. I was in the KOW newsroom surfing on the floor, and Cairo 7 reporter Brian Wood was at Seattle City Hall waiting for a news conference. Earthquake, earthquake. get on the air now, 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 get on the air, let's go, let's go. This is Brian Wood live in downtown Seattle. This is Brian Wood live in downtown Seattle on the 12th floor of the mayor's conference room. We were waiting for a news conference when it hit. An earthquake. Undoubtedly, you felt it just in the matter of seconds. Things are still rolling, even as we speak right now. Some of the uh, items here on the walls and on the display cases fell down. Many people headed for doorways to stand there to brace themselves. The 12th floor is still moving, even as we speak right now. It was intense. It was solid. Man, let me ask my memory is that some buildings lost lost brick and lost facades, and I think one person died of a heart attack that occurred during the earthquake. I, I, I hope I'm not getting that wrong, um, but uh, the 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 quaking, the shaking was real. It was 
generally considered not to be the big one, capital B, capital O, that could be much worse here. And this week we practiced for the big one with our annual great shakeout drill. We you practice calmly sitting under your desk, imagining what you will actually be doing when the big one hits. Did any of you participate in the, the great shakeout? Uh, guilty, I did not. Uh, but uh, it's it's something that I, I think about often. I was actually standing right next to Brian Wood uh, oh. when that happened 20 years ago up on the okay. 12th floor of City Hall. And I think about this a lot in terms of our response because Brian was the man. I mean, he got on air right away and I was like, oh, yeah, I got to do that, too. And so instantly I called in. I was working at, as it was known then, Q13. And uh, and so I was like, all right, we got to do this. And so there I was dialing in to the little earpiece that lets me know how people are talking to me or whatever else. And the cell phone went dead. And I think about that then and now how much more reliant that we have become on looking at our phones for everything, right? So if that system goes down, which it could very well do in a major quake, how prepared really are we to deal with that? And uh, it turned into a big challenge throughout the news day there as we we're using the good old two-way radios and things of that nature. Um, but I, I think there's a lot of different pieces behind this where you, you got to try to get prepared in different ways because we get so reliant on things like this kind of technology and we might not have that when a big one hits. Absolutely, Brian. You know, I do a lot of reporting uh, where I consult people with the Office of Emergency Management and other emergency preparedness groups. And um, a woman I was speaking with recently told me one of the most important things you can do is to try to go a day without your cell phone and see what you are able to do in those situations where an earthquake mm -hmm. might knock out the communications mechanisms that you rely on. That's a good idea. Mm -hmm. uh, um, and I feel like I would not be prepared, but it crosses my mind too ever since I've moved to this area a couple of years ago, because a lot of people always talk about the big one. And then I just, in my mind, just imagine, you know, things just shaking up, maybe a huge like tsunami or something, devastation. Mm -hmm. And I live in West Seattle um, and I'm kind of on higher elevation, higher ground. So I'd like to think that, you know, I'm, I'd be okay. But then the bridge is down too. So, you know, which way are we all going to go? <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, in, in our area of Seattle, it's not necessarily the really big one that everyone's nervous about. It's what if something happened along the Seattle fault? Mm -hmm. um, and we were all stuck in a situation where as emergency responders are dealing with uh, mass casualties and burning buildings, we're just kind of stuck in our neighborhoods, maybe without communications for weeks and what do we do to survive that and support our neighbors? So, you know, when we say we're practicing for the really big one, I'm, I've got other earthquake potential on my mind. Yeah, Hannah, you reported on that uh, this week uh, that, that a lot of the real big action happens after the shaking is over and we, we, yeah. we misunderstand that or we minimize how important that can be. Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of focus on making sure we know our ingress and egress. If we're in an emergency situation, uh, we have phone numbers, we have a plan with our immediate family, we have go bags, we know how to get the heck out and find shelter or hunker down and use tools like ShakeOut. But, you know, there's more that we need to be doing than cleaning out Costco of MRE style mac and cheese rations to support our families. Like, uh, it, there's so many stages of emergency preparedness that we don't focus on, like what happens immediately after the fact. If we have low priority concerns or mini emergencies where we're not dead, but we're not doing great, like maybe we lost our dog or someone's having an allergic reaction and emergency responders are tied up. So I've been following a group of volunteers, um, the Communications Hub Network, who of their own volition, uh, since the Nisqually quake actually, kind of prompted by that, have been preparing neighborhood groups to stand up communications headquarters in places where people might naturally congregate like fields or parks and help information and resources get where they need to go. Um, and one of the things that helps them do that, I recently attended a field exercise where you kind of work your improv muscles and get volunteers to pretend to be people who've you know, have amnesia or want to offer a meat smoker just in case anyone has meat that's going bad. And how do they get that information where it needs to go? So some of these volunteers that are part of these hubs, uh, this was at Jefferson Park, were practicing like, oh my God, if I were actually in this situation, like I can't actually make buildings go down or a landslide happen, but I can get myself kind of in the mindset of ad-libbing what I might do to really dial in these instincts. And it was really awesome to see how over the course of a few hours, it really did get dialed in and more streamlined. 
That's well. Did the meat? All the meat get smoked properly? I mean, that's that's kind of a big concern. I would think. I, you know, I like where your head's at, Brian. <laughs> right, right. It, it it is interesting to see how people prepare or don't prepare, and I, I I think about that in a lot of different ways. The city of Seattle, I know, has a number of plans for that. Uh, I know they're very concerned about some of the different buildings in our historic areas, this unreinforced masonry that's there. Um, I've done a few stories on that, too. And and these are areas that I think the city is really trying to keep an eye on. But again, it's one of these types of things that you put in the back of your mind. Earthquake preparedness, unreinforced masonry, whatever else doesn't seem like a top of mind issue until you do get a bigger quake or even a smaller one, as you mentioned there, Hannah. And then what do we have? So, um, yeah, this is a difficult thing in terms of priorities personally, like what you do, and also what the different local governments are doing about it as well. Exactly. We've got ham radio, apparently. That's what that's what we've mm-hmm. got. And we have to know where the roads and uh, streets are that we can use on, by foot or by bike. Yep. Um, so, Get out know, the I old moved. Thomas guys. I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Mm-hmm. I moved during the pandemic, and I'm still figuring out you know, what my emergency safety routes are. And I haven't met a lot of my neighbors yet, which is disconcerting for me. Like I'm wilderness first responder certified. I have a go bag, but the thing that I really need is that strong, resilient community network. So one of the things that this group especially drives home for me is that it's good to feel more connected with the people around you and improve your community ties because it helps your well-being even when you're not in an emergency situation. So if anything else, like while you're practicing sitting under a table, you know, call your neighbors. Like that's also a good thing to prep for. Thank you, Hannah. I needed that. While you were speaking, I uh, pulled my phone out, as you can see, if you're <laughs> watching us, because this is my, this is like a ritual now. I'm looking at about f- 15 or 20 things on my list before we get to neighborhood earthquake preparedness. And what I do every weekend is every Saturday, I don't get to it and I move it to Sunday. And then every no. Sunday, I move it to the following Saturday. Then, mm. So I, I needed, I am your audience. I needed that. So I, I really got into that stuff. Uh, that's Hannah Weinberger uh, with Crosscut. And we're here with uh, Jennifer Lee from, we're here with Brian Callanan from Seattle Channel. Um, we've got uh, just a, a little bit to, um, to, to round out a bit of election news, which I know uh, you've been following particularly, Brian, uh, some new polls came out this week. Did they, hmm. What did they tell you about how our voters are leaning right now? I, I, they said a few different things. This is the NPI poll that we saw, and I think that there was an indication that uh, there were a lot of these different um, – Uh, A lot of the different more centrist uh, viewing uh, candidates that are out there that are getting more of the votes or could get more of the votes. I I saw that. I saw that there was a closer race in the position nine uh, race in between Nikita Oliver and Sarah Nelson for city council there. And and we'll have to see all that, how all that plays out. I think looking at at one poll is never a a good idea uh, with these things. So I think you're going to have a lot of close races with probably the exception of the position eight race for Teresa Mosqueda. She showed really strongly in the primary. And I think she's going to carry that on through. But it's 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 difficult for me to say where this is actually going to go, because we see these polls come out or whatever else. But I think a lot of the people who are super engaged with the whole process here, with the whole election process, they've probably already voted. I mean, people have had their ballots for about a week now. The real challenge is to grab up these people who are not as engaged. And that's going to be this real effort over the next couple of weeks here as they try to bring in more people. King County Election says we might have a 46 percent turnout, which is kind of rough. Get out there and vote, people. You got to do this. But uh, they're saying that amount of people you know, is going to come out and vote. So I think that press is really on right now to bring in some of these people who might be undecided. There's a lot of that that still exists in our voting populace right now. Get those undecided votes. Get those people who might not be as engaged, engaged with the process. And you'll see a lot of different mailers coming in over the next week. Watch out. Your mailbox is going to be full. Yeah, I think it's definitely been very competitive, just like you were saying, Brian. And um, I live in an apartment building that has secure entry, fob entry. And I won't say which candidate, but some people showed up inside my building, knocked on my door, and I was just surprised because um, I think it just goes to show how hard people are working to get the word out to vote. Mm. Absolutely, Jennifer. I have uh, politely requested that some people take me off of their phone lists as most of the calls and texts that I've been getting in the past few weeks have been oriented around the council mayoral race. Yeah. And, And it's interesting to see just these 
very familiar lines that we've seen in our city for many, many years. Okay, this is the label of progressive over here. This is the label of centrist or moderate over here. There doesn't appear to be a lot of this middle ground here. And I think people are are in some ways kind of looking for that candidate that they can that they can align with, that they can try to get together with. But neither of the sides there, you'll I, I guess I would say, are drifting really towards the middle at all. They're really kind of doubling down on those positions that might be a little further on the extreme, some people would argue. And and I think that can make it difficult for voters. So there's a lot to kind of cut through here uh, in terms of trying to figure out what these different uh, candidates are all about. Um, I, I'm sorry about that visit to the place there, Jennifer. That's not the way to do it. I don't think uh, uh, candidates should be doing something like that. But it does really speak to the lengths that they're going to here. Again, we're talking about record setting amount of dollars uh, in all these elections too. record setting amount of PAC money coming into these different races like the mayor's race. It's it's really amazing to see the focus that is coming in on this. Just a hyper focus of political activity here locally. See, this is what I mean, Hannah. I've already filled out my ballot and mailed it in, and, mm-hmm. but I haven't gotten to neighborhood earthquake preparedness. Uh, something else keeps coming up. Get on it, Bill. Come on. Okay, get on all of it. Um, okay, we're getting toward the end of the show. Um, is there? I always like to, to leave listeners and, and us with, with a reason to smile because the news can be, can be a rough go sometimes and quite serious and important. Anything making you smile this week? I'll just once again bring up Hector Garcia, who yeah. returned home to Federal Way, and uh, his wife Elizabeth uh, texted me some pictures after we had done a story with them, and it was just the sweetest thing. She had said that she prepared his favorite El Salvadorian meal, pupusas, so I got a picture of him in front of the food, and it was just very sweet. We were talking about Hector earlier, for those just joining us, who had basically had COVID for a year, and they, they were prepared or did say goodbye to him several times. They were readying memorial services in Hector's back home. Uh, any other? Thank you for that, Jennifer. Anything else to smile about before we leave you? Uh, absolutely. Oh, go for it, Brian. No, no, no. You go, Hannah. Go right ahead. Okay. Uh, so, you know, I uh, have been thinking a lot about the beluga that was seen in Puget Sound last week. I you know, got to report out a story on that and listen to a lot of Rafi in the process. And people have been really <laughs> concerned about what's going to happen to that beluga that is, uh, you know, for context, hasn't been seen in Puget Sound. We haven't seen the species in Puget Sound since at least recorded 1940. Um, the nearest populations are more than a thousand miles away. So it's disconcerting to see this animal in this place, even if it might be exciting, it's a little anxiety inducing and people want to make sure that it has some space and that it doesn't run into any problems. And is it, while, I'm sorry, uh, Hannah, is it anxiety producing because uh, we're, we're now focused on this one animal or because, well, when things are where they shouldn't be normally, that's bad news? What do you mean? It's the latter, I think, okay. mostly okay. because uh, when something isn't supposed to be here and we don't know why, there are mm-hmm. a lot of questions left mm-hmm. to answer. And marine researchers are trying to do that. Um, they've been trying to collect photos and do health assessments. And some researchers have been able to get out and take those photos to see if this whale is potentially part of you know, the Cook Inlet population, yeah. um, which is the closest one to us. So we can get a sense of, well, how far did this whale get? And they've been watching it and looking for updates to see, you know, is it making its way? Is it confused? Like, oh no, like why is it here in the first place? And while we don't have any answers on that end yet, there haven't been reportings of strandings. So it is likely still alive. And that is something that I am smiling about. So there's Glad still a to chance to get it home. Thank you for that, Brian. I just uh, saw a headline in the Times this week that I thought was really cool. The 50th anniversary of the vote that saved the Pike Place Market, the Let's Keep the Market initiative. It just seemed like kind of a a cool 50th anniversary to talk about because we do seem very divided politically, I know, in the city and in this country right now. So it's always good when you can know that it's out there. Voters have and hopefully can continue to have this ability to do, uh, do the right thing, get together and do the right thing and what's best for the city. I was reading the I was in the comment section, which I don't recommend. It's a pit. Yeah, but I was reading tough. a yeah. piece about <laughs> Seattle and whether it was dying and all, and, yeah, and yeah, somebody yeah. somebody said Pike Place Market is ruined. It's gotten overrun with tourists. Yeah, that's the problem they were trying to have. I mean, and and that's the whole thing. You've got uh, small farmers there. You've got uh, places for low income people to live or whatever else. That dream that was around 50 years ago has really played out over the next several decades. And that's I think it's a, a wonderful thing to celebrate. That's Brian Callanan. And Brian joins us from uh, Seattle Channel 
And we've got Hannah Weinberger here, who's the science reporter at Crosscut. And we've got Fox 13 reporter Jennifer Lee giving you uh, ways to be informed and then reasons to smile. It's just uh, such a pleasure to always see you every week. Thank you for being our, our, our Week in Review show this week, team. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Bill. I Thank you so much. It's, it's been great. I can wave at you because uh, thanks to the help that we get from Tio Popescu and from Juan Pablo Chiquiza, we live stream the show. And maybe you watched us on uh, YouTube or on Facebook. And uh, we want to thank uh, Sarah Leibovitz and Alec Cowan, who produced this program. And I'm Bill Radke. I'm saving my final thank you for you because I think that you are making your pledge right now. We're in our fall membership drive and it's the only Friday fall membership drive day. So this is the only week in review that you can support with your dollars. And I know you enjoy week in review because I can, I can scroll along the comments that uh, we've been getting from you as we've been doing this uh, pledge drive. And I see Ryan in Tacoma saying, most other news media outlets seem to have abandoned journalistic ethics. And I see NPR as a last bastion. And I see Virginia sending support from Port Orchard. KUOW is a pick-me-up. And if you haven't yet become a member, well, what do they say? That's that's an opportunity. It's not a challenge. It's an opportunity because we love new members. And here's how to become a member right now. 206-543-9595. Or you can go online. You can go to KUOW.org. You can text KUOW. This is the letters KUOW, and you're texting it to the number 41444. And we would love to send along a thank you gift as we do when you make a pledge. Uh, we're getting toward the end of the hour here, so I want you to know that you're listening to KUOW FM Seattle, KUOW Tumwater, and KUOW Bellingham. Remember that KUOW works in service of the truth and your right to know. And more than 92% of our funding comes from individual contributors and local business supporters who share our belief that an informed public makes our community stronger. Every week, about 400,000 people listen to KOW. Did you know about 13% of those listeners pay for the news and the reporting that we all depend on? Now, maybe you're not in a position, financially in a position to become a member. We understand. That's why we who can become a member come together right now. Call 543-9595, area code 206-543-9595, or go online, KUOW.org. Maybe get a KUOW tie-dye bucket hat, a good-looking hat that uh, proclaims your KUOW love on there. Uh, we, 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 we dig deeper when we can, right? We could expand our work more if more listeners were a- able to stand with us. So why not make an evergreen membership? If you've already made one at $10 a month, maybe you can up it to $20 a month. Uh, that evergreen membership just uh, comes out automatically from your bank account, your credit card, however you set it up, and then KOW is good to go. Thank you for listening to Week in Review this week and every week. Thank you for supporting local journalism. And remember, the most tangible, effective way to support it is with your pledge of support right now. Thank you so much for joining us on KOW Seattle. I'm Bill Radke.